The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So let's now open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Amen, amen. And uh, we're grateful to uh, be together and uh, to be able to uh, celebrate these great truths together, uh, the glory that belongs to our our great God. As, uh, again, we uh, mark this uh, day that in in history uh, that uh, the authority of uh, God's word and uh, uh, the uh, understanding of justification by uh, faith alone and uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone was uh, was really uh, started, and uh, really God uh, brought that back. And uh, really thinking about uh, God's providence, understanding that God is uh, the God of all history, and that everything that happens happens uh, under His control, under His domain, and by His design. And we're so grateful uh, for that. Why don't you turn in your Bibles back to First uh, to Peter, First uh, Peter, and we're actually going to uh, take a look back at chapter one. We're only going to look at one verse in chapter one, uh, but I thought this would just be a helpful uh, a place to, to start uh, as we think about uh, the truths that we're going to be uh, thinking about today, uh, which is, uh, as we mentioned before, those different solas of the Reformation, and the one that really started it all off was sola scriptura understanding of the authority of scripture alone because that's where everything else was understood you know the way that we got to understand grace alone faith alone christ alone the glory of god alone was through sola scriptura it's through the understanding of scripture and first peter uh, chapter one is a passage that we've covered recently but it gives us a great summary of scripture that i'd like to remind us of as we think about the importance of scripture and those who preserved it for us. First uh, Peter chapter 1, and I'll be reading verses 23 down to 25. First Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 23. It says, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Why don't you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, and Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for the gift that your word is to us. And Father, we do pray that as we take a look at your word, Lord, that you would open it up to us, that you'd help us to understand. And Father, that you would help us to celebrate this word that was given to us as a gift that displays your character uh, that displays who you are, the person of God, and also the, the way to God has been revealed to us in re- your word. So, Father, we do thank you for the, the precious gift of salvation that's communicated to us in these pages. In Jesus' name, we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. Amen. Every person, as we've mentioned before, who can trace their line back to Adam, which is all of us, has inherited spiritual corruption and death. According to the scripture, we're born with a bent towards evil. Uh, in Genesis 8.21, it uh, lets us know that at that time that the intent of man's heart was evil, even from his youth. In uh, Psalm 58 and verse 3, it speaks about the wicked who are estranged from the womb. So it's not that we have a, a bad fruit, that we produce bad fruit, and that makes us a bad tree. 
It's that we are a bad tree and that because of that, that we produce bad fruit. It's, it's from the core of who we are. We're not spiritually healthy, but the, the Bible describes us as those who are spiritually sick. In Mark chapter 2 and verse 17, Jesus says that it's not the healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. And that's a description of all of us apart from Christ. And he goes on to describe who the sick are. He says that I've not come to call the righteous, but who? But sinners to repentance. That's who the sick are. And we're bound in this condition, this spiritual sickness. We're actually slaves to our sin apart from Christ. In John chapter 8 and verse 34, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin, and that's as an ongoing practice, is a slave of sin. You're bound in this. We're caught up in the snare of the devil, it says in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 26. We live in, in spiritual darkness and ignorance. And this is a condition that we loved. We, we love the darkness. That's what it talks about in John chapter 3, right? It says that you won't come to the light. Why? Because you love your deeds and your deeds are evil. You love the dark. That's why you won't come to Jesus Christ. You know, so many times you speak to people and uh, you assume that it's because they just need a little bit more information about this gospel. You know, that if you could only explain it to them a little bit better, if you could only, you know, display the glories of Christ a little bit brighter, that, that somehow they finally come to Jesus Christ. But that's not it. It's not that they need more information. They need a transformation. And they're in the dark. And that's why they don't come to Christ. Why? Because Christ is light. They don't want to come to the light because their deeds are evil. People are ignorant of the truth and they love it so. One theologian says our minds were blinded, our wills were predisposed to sinful choices, actions, emotions. They're disordered. Our relationship with God is broken. It's stained. And finally, we sat under the sentence of physical, spiritual, and eternal death. When God warned Adam in Genesis 2, 17, that you know, if you eat from that, that tree in the midst of the garden, that you will surely die. It happened in three ways. <laughs> Adam, Adam died immediately. There was a spiritual separation. Spiritual separation between him and, and God. Adam would also die physically. There would be a physical separation between the soul and the, the body. And without a relationship to God, he would also die eternally. There's three deaths that we could look forward to if it was not for the grace of God. From the moment he ate of the tree, there was an immediate separation, which is followed by a physical death. And apart from the grace of God would end in an eternal death. And that's the trajectory of all mankind. In uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 22, it says, as in Adam, all die. And if you ever wondered whether or not you're in Adam, just ask yourself, do I have a death date on my calendar? <laughs> We're all in Adam. We're all going to die. Mankind has been cut off from the life of God because of Adam. And we're born into this world, evil, sick, ignorant, enslaved, spiritually dead. And apart from the work of God, we will not inherit eternal life. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty says, Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. We're all heading to death. Which lets us know that we need a new kind of life, right? That the life that you currently have apart from Christ will not gain you entrance into eternal life. That's why we need a new life. And that's why we need to be born again, which is exactly what First uh, Peter speaks about in verse 23. For you have been born again, 
That word, uh, born again, anaganao, it's uh, from the root word gena, uh, which is where we get the word genealogy, generate, generation. It speaks about begetting, fathering a child. The Greek translation of the Old Testament, when it speaks about Adam uh, begetting a son, he begot Seth. It uses that Greek term ganao, begetting offspring. And what we understand from Scripture is that we need a new birth. And getting a new birth has to come from a new kind of seed because Adam's seed is not going to do it. We need a new birth from a new seed. And the seed that's given to us is the word of God. Just four terms that I want to highlight about this word of of God. Uh, Verse 23, it says, You've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. What is the word of God? The word of God is imperishable seed. That to perish has the idea of uh, being destroyed, being killed, being corrupted, being decayed. Imperishable refers to the word of God, which can't be destroyed, which can't be killed, which can't be corrupted, which will not decay. That is the word of God. Actually, the word for perishable was used for the, uh, the perishable wreaths that athletes would receive in the, the Greek and Roman games. They would have these wreaths that would be put on their, their heads. Uh, and often the, the leaves were, were made of, of laurel trees, laurel uh, uh, leaves. Have you ever heard uh, the expression, you know, don't sit on your laurels? It actually comes from this period of time where they would have this laurel wreath, you know, that would recognize the past accomplishment. So when somebody says, don't sit on your laurels, they're saying, don't sit on your past accomplishments. You know, so this laurel wreath was a symbol of their past accomplishment, but this wreath that would be given to them would eventually fade away. They they, they couldn't hang on to it. You couldn't preserve it. Eventually, this laurel wreath, you know, made up of leaves, would decay and perish. And really, from the time that it was cut off of the tree, it was already in the process of dying. And that's what... The Bible lets us know that everything else is like it's this, this perishing leaf, but it's the word of God that will not perish. Your life, apart from Christ, will decay, will rot, will perish, but it's the, the word of God that cannot be killed. The word of God is imperishable. Number two, the word of God is not only imperishable, it's also living. It's living. Again, in verse 23, it says, that is through the living and enduring word of God. The the word has life in itself. The the word of God has all that is needed to reproduce new life. All that's needed is contained within the seed. And that's, that's an amazing quality about a seed that everything that's needed is inside of that seed. And it's the same way with the word of God. In John 6, verse 63, Jesus says, The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. What's needed for new life is contained in the word that I'm giving you. Simon Peter answered in chapter 6 and verse 68, it says, you have the words of eternal life. I mean, that's, that's where eternal life comes from. It comes from your words. Hallelujah. Philippians 2.16 says, we're holding fast the word of life. How does new life happen? It, it happens through the word of God. You know, Romans 10.17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ or the word of God. That's how new life comes. That's why you hear these stories about people who, you know, pick up a track or they pick up a page of scripture and they come to faith in Jesus Christ. You know, without the the altar calls, without the the dimming of the lights, without the mood music, they come to faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because it's the word of God that produces that life. Life comes from the word of God. It's living. It's alive. Something's alive about this book that's not about any other book. This book has life. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says that the word of God is living and active. It's producing something. Not only is the the word of God living, it's also 
enduring, enduring, which is just another way to say it's not going anywhere. The word of God will remain. It holds fast. Psalm 119 and verse 89 says, Oh, Lord, your words are settled in heaven. It's immovable. Matthew 5 and verse 18 says, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. All all the bits and pieces about Scripture will be fulfilled. Not going to pass away. Psalm 93 verse 1 says, The word is firmly established. It will not be moved. It will not be moved. Generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. It speaks about uh, the, the earth as being firmly established, but the word of God is even more firm than the earth. You know, not to get into your views on global warming, but uh, the Bible speaks about the earth as something that is firmly established and will not be moved. We're incapable of moving the heavens and the earth, but the scripture says that there's something even more permanent than that, and it's the word of God. The word of God will endure. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall not pass away. And fourthly, the word of God is divine. Oh, book divine. (laughs) This, this book, this word comes from God, which you would have already assumed, but just to make it, it clear here, and by pointing this out, what we're saying is that there's, there's a different characteristic about this word, different than any other word. This book comes from God, and it maintains the character of the one that it came from. And just to think about the contrast of what's perishing and what's imperishable, about what's living and about what's dead, about what will pass and about what's enduring... It all comes from the seed. Why do we perish? Because Adam perished. Why are we corrupted? Because Adam was corrupted. Why do we die? Because Adam died. Death was in Adam. But when we receive a new seed, we receive the quality of that new seed. So so the life that is given to us is now an imperishable life. Why? Because that seed is imperishable. And it's really related back to the character of God himself. Psalm 102, verse 26, even they will perish, but you endure, and all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them, and they will be changed. It's the seed that's living. Why? Because the God that it comes from is living. One of the common designations for God is the living God. He's the living God. Jeremiah 10 and verse 10, the Lord is true. He is the living God and the everlasting King. And why? Well, we have a life that will endure. It's because God himself is enduring. Psalm 45 or 6, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. That is the description of this word. It's an imperishable word, a living word, an enduring word, and a divine word. And it all comes from God, and it bears his characteristics. And the text ends by saying that we can't stop it. It's a word above all earthly powers. We sang it in the, the song, a mighty fortress is our God, right? In verse 24, it says, for all flesh is like grass. Oh, it's glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. And as we look back into history, Martin Luther wasn't the only person who understood that. Uh, There were men who were equally committed to the word of God. And uh, I want to introduce you to at least one of those men today. There's a man by the name of John Wycliffe. He was born in the village of Wycliffe near Richmond in uh, Yorkshire, England. Uh, The exact date of his uh, birth isn't known, but the traditional year of his birth is 1324, over 150 years uh, before Martin Luther was born in 1483. And he would have been raised in a time that's almost near impossible to get a sense of. Uh, This was a time before the discovery of the New World, uh, before the printing press, 
uh, before any advances in medicine, before the, the Bible and the common tongue. One author writes this, that the century that Wycliffe was born in has been ignored by historians because it was so dismal. Corruption in government, decadence in morals, natural disasters, warring nations, and an antique economic system all worked together to produce a dark and bleary century. Another says that the word medieval, if you just say the word medieval, it conjures up these dark Gothic images chanting cloister-crazed monks and superstitious peasants. And that's the world that Wycliffe was brought into. And what was it like to be a, a Christian during these centuries, before the, the Reformation? One author describes life for the peasants. He says, he stood or knelt in the floor of the church each Sunday. He could not follow the Latin words, but watched what he revered and heard the familiar yet mysterious sounds. Around him blazed on the walls were scenes from the scriptures Lives of the saints over the loft was the last judgment depicted in lively colors. Paradise opening to receive the just and on the other side, flaming hell with devil executioners tormenting naked souls. John Fox, in uh, the book uh, Fox's Christian Martyrs, he says at this time, Christianity was in a sad state. Although everyone knew the name of Christ, few if any understood doctrine, faith, consolation, the use of the law, The works of Christ, our human weakness, the Holy Ghost, the strength of sin, the works of grace, justification by faith, and Christian liberty were never even mentioned in the church. Instead, the church was solely concerned with outward ceremony and human traditions. And this is a great place to remind us of the priority of preaching in the church. The church has always been a word-driven ministry. And when we think about the the birth of the church, it was characterized by a sermon on the day of Pentecost, right? That's the the birth of the church. And those who joined the church, as it says in Acts chapter 2, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. It's it's teaching that characterized the church. In Acts 6 and verse 4, it says, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. That's what the, the apostles did. It was about the word of God. And then Paul encourages Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 2 with these words, preach the word. Be ready to do this, in season, out of season. Preach the word. And that's the foundation of the true church. But it's not what characterized the medieval church. Michael Reeves writes, The service of the mass was said in Latin. The people, of course, understood not a word. The trouble was neither did many of the clergy, who found learning the service by rote easier than learning a whole new language. Many of the, the clergy who are repeating these words of the mass don't even understand what they're saying. It's just that it's been passed down, so they just repeat what's been passed down to them. Thus, when the parishioners heard hocus pocus instead of hoc est corpus, ma'am, which is Latin for this is my body, who knows whose mistake it was? You know, hocus pocus, nobody knows what, it's, what it means. They could not expect any preaching from their priest in the church. They could not trust the preaching that they did hear from traveling friars, you know, the preachers from Rome who were sent, sermons that... They heard from these traveling preachers were so embellished by stories that people found it hard to distinguish between what's scripture and what's from him. I don't know the difference. And their preaching was often done for the sake of money. And sadly, in some churches, not much has changed. Preachers who are preaching for the sake of sordid gain. And these preachers would often travel with what were known as indulgences. These, these uh, certificates that would guarantee some kind of forgiveness, merits of righteousness that could be purchased with money. And the Catholic Church took the position that there were some saints who were better than they needed to be 
in order to reach heaven and that they could transfer their good works to others. And the key to unlock these good works belonged to the Pope. So the Pope could pass on this forgiveness of sins through these friars who would peddle them. And instead of showing signs of contrition or doing good works, you know, if you can just slide them a little bit of money, you know, the indulgence could be yours. Some forgiveness of sins. John Fox continues, he says, people spent their entire lives heaping up one ceremony after another in hopes of salvation, not knowing it was theirs for the asking. Simple, uneducated people who had no idea of Scripture were content to know only what their pastors told them. And their pastors took care only to teach what came from Rome, most of which was for the profit of their own orders and not for the glory of Christ. And just to give you an idea of just how strong and powerful the Catholic Church was during this time, in the 13th century, there was a dispute between Pope Innocent and John, uh, King John of England over the appointment of a bishop, an archbishop in Canterbury. You know, so King John had, you know, one desire, the Pope had another desire. And when King John defied the Pope's orders, the Pope excommunicated him, closed all of the churches in England for two years, and encouraged the French to invade his territory. That was the kind of power that the Catholic Church had. And on May 15th, 1213, King John surrendered unconditionally to the Pope, resigned his kingdom to him, agreed to pay a thousand marks, which was uh, two-thirds of a pound of sterling silver every year, and then he removed his crown and placed it in the Pope's hands. That's the kind of power that the Pope had. And if you're familiar with the, the Magna Carta, one of the reasons that King John was forced to sign the Magna Carta uh, was because uh, England did not want to become slaves to the Pope. That was actually one of the reasons behind that document. And this is the kind of environment that Wycliffe was raised in. We don't know a whole lot about his early life. Uh, we do know that at the age of 16, he was accepted into Oxford, and he quickly fell in love with the scriptures. Uh, at this time, it really wasn't even necessary for those who were studying to become priests. Think about this. Those who were studying to become priests didn't even have to study the Bible. That wasn't necessary to become clergy. There were readings from the scriptures for bachelors of theology, and the, but the middle and higher ranks considered the Bible, listen to this, beneath their dignity to expound on so elementary a book as the scriptures. And Fox says there was no mention of the scriptures. There was no mention of Peter and Paul. There was more mention of Aquinas and Scotus, you know, these theologians. But Wycliffe fell in love with the scriptures. And he came to be known as the Bible doctor. And it was the scriptures that became his rock of refuge and a shelter during a time of storm, which was necessary because just a few years later after he entered into Oxford, a fearful plague broke out over England, known as the Black Death, a bubonic plague, you know, that was uh, caused by the bacteria of uh, uh, fleas living on the backs of black rats. And uh, it first appeared in Asia, uh, then marched across Europe, finally reached England, Every day, 20, some 30, some 40, 50 more dead corpses were laid in one deep pit. Just people dying all around, according to one account, in a newly made churchyard from the first day of February till uh, the beginning of May. So this is months that this is going on, February, March, April, May. You know, during all these months, every day, 200 corpses were buried. Every day, besides those who were in other churchyards of the city. In those days, scarcely was there living enough to bury the dead. A hundred thousand died in London. Half of the entire nation was struck down 
Two-thirds of the population died. I mean, this is the kind of pestilence that we're talking about. And it wasn't COVID. Animals were affected. Carcasses covered the fields. Farms stopped. Law courts closed. Terror mourning. Death reigned. It was the context that Wycliffe relied on the scriptures. It was in this context. You know, seeing the death all around him, he finally came to rely on the scriptures. Psalm 119, 67 says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Psalm 119, verse 71 says, it was good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. He said, it was good for me in the Psalms. And it's actually this pestilence that brought Wycliffe to his knees before God. He started to see the the futility of life without trusting in a savior. And the plague left this deep impression on his life. He said it was like the, the trumpet of the judgment of God. And he felt how awful a thing it would have been for him to die without Christ. And he laid the burden of his soul on scripture. And what became characteristic of his life was now a submission to the word of God. And it transformed his life. It transformed everything about him. And shortly after his conversion, he began to write this uh, publication. He wrote this publication called The Last Age of the Church. Listen to what he wrote. He says, When we were sinful and the children of wrath, God's Son came out of heaven, and praying his Father to forgive his enemies, he died for us. Then much rather shall we be saved. Now we are made righteous through his blood, which was his way of speaking about justification by faith alone. It's only through the blood of Christ that we can be saved. Without the blood of Christ, there is no remission of sins. It's through the precious blood of Christ. And after being transformed, just like Paul in Acts 17, his spirit began to be provoked within him as he looked around and saw the city full of idols. Now he's starting to open his eyes to all that's going around him in the religion of his day. And he compared everything that he saw with Scripture and gradually realized that the whole system of Rome was in contradiction to the word of God. Fox writes this, perceiving the true doctrine of Christ's gospel to be adulterated and defiled with so many filthy inventions of bishops and monks and dark errors, and after long debating and deliberating with himself, he could no longer suffer or abide the same. He at last determined within himself to help and remedy such things as he saw. He says, I've got to make a difference. Many before Wycliffe attacked the church's practices, but Wycliffe recognized that the root of the church's error was in the church's teaching. He drew the conclusion, as one author says, that the church is a unity and knows nothing of papal primacies, hierarchies, monks, friars, priests, and that the salvation of the elect was not conditioned by masses, indulgences, penance, and priestcraft. And remember, at this time, there's no other church that they would have known about except the church of, of Rome. So he's right here attacking everything that anybody knew. And in 1360, he began to give public lectures against the abuses of the clergy, Started out by speaking against the friars he claimed in the, uh, who claimed that they could, in the name of the Pope, grant pardon for sins. And Wycliffe says, there's no pardon but what comes from God. There's no greater heresy than for a man to believe that he's absolved from his sins if he gives money or if a priest lays his hand upon his head. You must be sorrowful in your heart before the Lord. And he accused the friars of making the land lawless, being children of Judas Iscariot, betraying the truth of the gospel for money and maintaining that the scriptures are false and exalting themselves above Christ. He says, friars don't deal faithfully in showing people their sin, but they flatter them and nourish them in their sin. 
and he reacted to the friars of England much in the same way that Luther did years later to a Dominican friar named Tetzel. Same kind of thing going on here. He says it's blasphemous to think that you could pay God off with money. Much like uh, Simon the sorcerer, you remember him? Acts chapter 8 verse 20, where he thought that he could buy the spirit of God with money. And Peter turned around and says, may your money perish with you. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. And Wycliffe understood the same thing. 1373, he was selected to be part of the king's commission to represent England before the pope. Uh, There was a dispute over the pope taking the the most well-paid positions in England and giving them to foreigners, to people who didn't even know the language of of England. In one account, it says the very best of English positions and dignities were occupied by Italians, Frenchmen, and other foreigners. Some of them were mere boys and not only ignorant of the English language, but even Latin, who never saw so much as their church, but committed the care of them to those they could get to serve the cheapest. So basically, the Pope is giving these positions to people who don't even serve the church, but they're collecting the money from the church. It was an attempt to fleece the flock of England without any care for the sheep. And this commission that Luther, uh, that uh, Wycliffe was a part of, went to go negotiate uh, the churches to be given into the hands of people who would know and serve among the flock. Spent two years to try to negotiate it and came up empty. And after all these meetings with those who were closest to the Pope, he now turned his attention to the papacy. And he openly spoke against the Pope, spoke about him as Antichrist, the proud worldly priest of Rome, and the most cursed of clippers and purse curvers, which you may not know what a purse curver is, uh, but curver was an old uh, Middle English word for carve. So basically he says you're a purse carver. You, you cut the purse and get the money out of it. It's like a you know, purse snatcher, a thief. You know, you come in to slice the, the bag, the money bag, and grab the goods out of it. He says that's what you are. You're a purse curver. Wow. says they draw out of our land poor men's livelihoods, many thousand marks by the year. And the son of Simon the sorcerer makes all Christendom assent and maintain this heresy. The people of England appeared to him to be sheep without a shepherd, which is exactly how Jesus saw the people, right? Matthew nine thirty six. seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. God's sheep were to be shepherded and not shorn and slaughtered. And as expected, the Pope struck back, 1377, Three papal bulls or decrees from the Pope were sent to England, and Wycliffe was condemned as a master of errors who had run into a kind of detestable wickedness. The English clergy were chastised for allowing this dangerous heresy to spring up on their soil. And in 1377, uh, Wycliffe was cited to appear before the bishops gathered at Our Lady's Chapel in St. Paul's to answer for his teaching. But Wycliffe and his friends had, had friends in high places who appeared with him, And they made their way through the crowd. The Duke of Lancaster, the Earl Marshal of England, they made their way through the crowd. And uh, the Duke asked Wycliffe to sit down so you could comfortably answer your critics, which irritated the bishop that he would be given a seat. He says, no, he should stand while he's answering these charges. And with that, an argument broke out between these dignitaries and the the bishop. And uh, at one point, the Duke said, I would rather pluck the bishop by the hair of his head than take this from his hands. And violence broke out, and Wycliffe and his friends escaped. Next day, there was violence in the streets of London. A priest who tried to stop the violence was killed. And uh, it would have gone further if uh, the Bishop of London did not remind them that, hey, this is Lent. They're out there killing people, rioting, and he had to remind them that this is Lent. 
Wycliffe was dismissed with the strict orders not to continue to teach his doctrine. But just like the apostles in Acts chapter 4, 19, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. And Wycliffe continued to teach. He argued that the, the Pope should choose between apostleship and kingship. And if he preferred to be a king, let him claim nothing to us in the character of an apostle. 1378, he was called to another trial in England, Lambeth, England, this time with a larger crowd. And this time he came with a, a note from the Queen Mother of England forbidding them to pass a sentence on Wycliffe. So again, he had these friends in high places that protected him. And all again, just by the providence of God, by the, uh, the grace of God. But in 1381, it seemed that Wycliffe would finally be stopped. And this not even by his enemies, not even by his enemies' interference. 1381, he fell sick and his enemies rejoiced. They hastened to his bedside in hopes that he would recant his teachings before he died. They began wishing him well, but then they quickly revealed their true colors. They said, you have death on your lips, they said. Be touched by your faults. Retract in our presence all that you have said to our injury. But Wycliffe was calm. He fixed his eyes on them and he says, I shall not die, but live and declare again the evils of the friars. And in answer to his prayer, he miraculously recovered. (laughs) And he spent the remaining years of his life on the most important works of his life. Later on in that same year, he attacked what could be considered the heart of the Roman Catholic system. In 1381, he repudiated the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation. The false belief that the bread and the wine are literally changed into the body and blood of Jesus Christ during the Mass. It had only recently become a doctrine. It only became a doctrine in the church in 1215, a little over 150 years. It wasn't even considered a doctrine. But he says, I don't find it in Scripture. And he said, the consecrated host, which we see on the altar, is neither Christ nor any part of him, but the efficacious sign of him. No pilgrim on earth is able to see Christ in the consecrated host with the bodily eye, but with faith. And he challenged anyone who disagreed with him to debate, but nobody took him up on it, and everybody regarded him as a heretic. The University of Oxford that he lectured at for so long, so many years, summoned a council and condemned him. Even his friends in government fell silent during this time. They thought this time he went too far. And just like the Apostle Paul, 2 Timothy 4.16 says, At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. And that's who he stood, and he stood in the Lord. In his trial before Oxford, they accused him of heresy for denying a cardinal doctrine of the church, transubstantiation. But he replied, With whom are you contending? With an old man on the brink of the grave? No, you are contending with the truth. Truth which is stronger than you and will overcome you. And with those words, he turned to leave and was never permitted to return to Oxford again. And his last years were spent as a rector in Lutherworth, England. But it was outside of Oxford that God called him to his greatest work, which was Bible translation. In the early 13th century, it was decreed by the church that we forbid the laity to possess any books of the Old and New Testaments except perhaps the Psalter, which some out of devotion wish to have. But having any of these books translated into the vulgar tongue or the common language, we forbid. You can't have a Bible. You can't have a Bible. But Wycliffe despised and ignored that decree. 
He replied, you say it's heresy to speak of the Holy Scriptures in English? You call me a heretic because I've translated the Bible into the common tongue of the people? Do you know who you blaspheme? Did not the Holy Ghost give the word of God at first in the mother tongue of the nations to whom it was addressed? Why do you speak against the Holy Ghost? You say that the church of God is in danger from this book? How can that be? It is from the Bible that we learn that God has set up the church. It is not, is it not the Bible that gives all the, the church her authority? Is it not from the Bible that we learn who the builder and the sovereign of the church is? And he continued to say this, the lady ought to understand the faith, and as the doctrines of the faith are in the scriptures, believers should have the scriptures and language familiar to them. And then he made this insightful observation. If it is heresy to read the Bible, then the Holy Ghost himself is condemned, who gave in tongues to the apostles of Christ to speak the word of God in all languages that were ordained of God under heaven. What he's talking about is in uh, Acts chapter 2. Just flip over there real quick. Acts chapter 2. He's talking about the the day of of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit himself divided up the languages and made sure that those who were present could hear in their own tongue. Look at Acts chapter 2. I'll start at verse verse 5. It says, Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? And that became his argument for why the scriptures should be translated into the common tongue, the language in which you were born. In opposition to his English translation, it was said Christ delivered his gospel to the clergy and doctors of the church, They might administer it to the laity, to the weaker persons, according to the state of the times and the wants of man. But this master, John Wycliffe, translated it out of the Latin into the English and laid it more openly to the laity and to women who can read. And formerly had been to the most learned clergy, even to those of them who had the best understanding. In this way, the gospel pearl is trodden underfoot by swine, and that which was before precious, both to clergy and laity, is Rendered, as it were, the common jest of both, the jewel of the church is turned into the sport of the people, and what was hitherto the principal gift of the clergy and divines is made common for everyone. That's the the great sin. It's made common for everybody. But wasn't always the intent of the scriptures to be made common for everybody? The Greek language that the New Testament was translated from was the Koine Greek. You know what that means? Common. Common Greek. It was the common Greek language of the day. It was meant for common people. The Latin version, which existed, was to place the Bible in the reach of Latin-speaking people. And you know what it was called? The Latin Vulgate. The vulgar, common language of the people. 384 AD, uh, Jerome started working on the, the Latin translation to bring the Bible to the common people. And it was argued against even then. And that's what Wycliffe translated his work from, from the the Latin Vulgate. He he didn't have access to the Greek and and Hebrew. That would be uh, later on a man by the name of William Tyndale would actually translate the English Bible from the uh, Greek and the the Hebrew. Uh, So we'll learn about him later on. William Tyndale, he had the honor of doing it from the original languages. But Wycliffe used what he had. He used the Latin Vulgate to translate it into English for the common people. 
And the Latin Vulgate itself argues against the logic that the Roman Catholic Church was using to keep the Bible concealed. And if we think back to Scripture, Nehemiah chapter 8, after people of uh, Israel returned from captivity, uh, many of them did not understand the Hebrew language. And Nehemiah uh, chapter 8 and verse 8 says that they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. They wanted the word of God to be understood by the common people. So Wycliffe continued his work on translation with the help from others. And today, over 250 manuscripts from the Wycliffe Bible have survived. Each of these Bibles had to be copied painstakingly by hand because the printing press wasn't invented until 1440. But can you imagine hearing for the first time in your own language these words? Forsooth, God so loved the world that he gave us his one begotten son, that each man that believeth in him to into him perish not but have everlasting life imagine hearing that for the first time in your own language that was the work of Wycliffe in his day and it wasn't enough just to have a bible in english he also trained a group of preachers to to distribute the scriptures there were his own friars he called them poor priests or the bible men but his enemies called them the lollards uh, lollard was a, a word that meant mumbler because they were always speaking you know they're pulling out, you know, their scriptures that they would read and, you know, they would go over these sermons. So they called them mumblers, you know, lollards. But he taught this group of preachers to give serious study to the preaching and the word of God and cover the land with the truth. One observer says that every second man that you met was a lollard. And for a time they filled England with their preaching. Even though the church was united in opposition against them, hunted them down, they, they still spread the, the, the land with their teaching and Wycliffe encouraged them to continue to preach openly to the people and trust in the scriptures to do the work. He trusted in the word of God to bring people to faith, as it speaks about in 1 Peter 1, 23, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. Caught the attention of Rome, summoned him to appear before the Pope again, but he suffered a stroke, and in his own words, he was hindered by God from appearing he wrote back to the Pope and says, I'm always glad to explain my faith to anyone, and above all the bishop in Rome, for I take it for granted that if he be orthodox, he will confirm it. He continued to serve the church with what little, little energy he had. Last day of Sunday, 1384, just as he was about to serve the Lord's Supper, he became paralyzed, and two days later, December 31st, he died in his bed. But the story doesn't end there. Because his teaching and influence continued to spread, and over 30 years later, there was a man by the name of John Huss who was also being examined as being one of Wycliffe's followers. And it was this John Huss, who we'll learn about later, who continued to spread the same doctrine that Wycliffe had stumbled on, the authority of Scripture and the lordship of Christ over his church. And this council that met later on during the time of John Huss, examined Wycliffe's writings. On December 9, 1427, it was ordered that Wycliffe's body and bones be dug up from the grave. <laughs> like, he, he, he being dead yet speaks, you know, we've got to put a, put a stop to this. The body and bones of Wycliffe were dug up out of the grave, publicly burnt, and his ashes were disposed of so that no trace of him should be seen again, which is exactly what they did. They dug up his body, they burned his body to ashes, 
They cast it in an adjoining brook named the Swift Brook. But Fox summarizes it well. Although they burned his bones and drowned his ashes, the word of God and the truth of John Wycliffe's doctrine will never be destroyed. Another author said the Swift Brook conveyed his ashes to the Avon, the Avon to the Severn, the Severn to the Narrow Seas, and they into the main ocean. And thus the ashes of Wycliffe were the emblem of his doctrine, which are now spread all over the world. It's been said that the the darkest night is just before the break of dawn. And that it's at the time of the darkest night that the stars and planets shine the brightest. And the greatest of these that shine is called the morning star. Most commonly used for the, the planet Venus. And John Wycliffe has been called the morning star of the Reformation. Because he lived at one of the darkest times. And just before the bright dawn of the Protestant Reformation that would come later with Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, you had a pre-reformer, John Wycliffe, who was the bright morning star. But he was bright because he didn't shine his own light. He shone the light of Scripture. He pointed to the light of Scripture. 1 Peter one twenty four and 25 says, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off. But the word of the Lord endures forever, and this is the word that was preached to you. Let's uh, bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for uh, uh, this meditation on 1 Peter and also thinking about uh, what you've done through history and through the life of John Wycliffe. Uh, Father, today we uh, pick up our our Bibles, we go to our apps, we have multiple copies in our homes, and uh, sometimes we uh, barely stop to think about what a gift that is. And that so many in generations past didn't have access to the Word of God like we do. Uh, but there were so many in times past who, who sacrificed so much for the little that they could get. And uh, Father, uh, we're those who seem to sacrifice so little for the, the much that we can get. Uh, Father, I pray that there would be an increased devotion to the Scripture. Uh, Father, that you'd give us a, a, just a heart of gratitude for what you've done in history to, to give these books to us. Multiple Bibles, multiple versions, Father, that we all hold in our possession. Uh, Father, I pray that there would be a, a rejoicing in our great God for what you've done. And uh, Father, that uh, you would help us to be faithful in our generation, uh, just as men of times past were faithful in their generation, and that we'd be able to pass on the same gift uh, to generations future. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events or where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating CDs and all digital files.